This ePulmonology Review Program is presented by DKB Med Radio. He was just incredibly fit and he was incredibly sick. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, if someone who's younger than me and much better shape than me is this sick from COVID, we are in for a really, really long haul. COVID-19, then and now. Welcome to ePulmonology Review. Being on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, what was it like when the pandemic started and what's it like now? That's what we're here to talk about today with someone who's been on those front lines since the beginning. Dr. Brian Garibaldi is from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins, and he's director of both the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 Precision Medicine Center of Excellence and the Johns Hopkins Biocontainment Unit. For Dr. Garibaldi's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, epulmonologyreview.org, and select the Volume 2, Issue 5 link. Hello, I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of ePulmonology Review. Dr. Garibaldi, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Our focus today is on how response to COVID-19 has changed since the pre-pandemic days. And our first learning objective is to discuss the challenges in managing infected patients during the early days of the pandemic. So let me ask you to take us back, Dr. Garibaldi, to the first patient who presented to you with symptoms of COVID. I direct our biocontainment unit at Johns Hopkins. So we knew for several weeks that we were going to be the first unit to care for patients. So we began taking care of the first persons under investigation at the end of February of 2020. And our first confirmed patient was actually admitted to the hospital a few days before their test came back positive. But around, it was March 10th of 2020 when we admitted our first confirmed case to the biocontainment unit at Johns Hopkins. And what specific symptoms did this initial patient come in with? So this individual had a combination of both respiratory symptoms, but also some GI symptoms. She was having some abdominal pain and, and diarrhea, along with some shortness of breath and cough. Making the differential diagnosis, did that require a lot of consideration, or, or were you aware that this patient was coming in with a suspected COVID-19 infection? Yeah, so at that time, we were just starting to ramp up the number of patients who were being admitted with symptoms that were concerning for being a person under investigation. Just to, to set the context for everyone, if you remember back in early 2020, initially, in order to get a, a test for COVID, the testing had to be sent down to the CDC. That was the only place that was doing confirmatory testing. And for many weeks, you had to actually have a, an epidemiologic link to either a confirmed case of COVID or, or to a travel or a contact with a traveler from China in order to be able to get tested. So this was right around the time where we were starting to recognize that COVID was spreading more widely in the United States than we had appreciated. And it was just before many hospitals were able to bring on their own COVID tests when it became clear that the CDC wasn't going to meet the demand across the United States. So there certainly was a differential diagnosis, but at the time our team was called, we actually were notified that this patient did have a positive test, but she had been isolated as a person under investigation before that test came back. And can we assume she was maintained in isolation as soon as she came under your care? Yeah, she was isolated in, in one of our airborne isolation rooms. You know, our, our hospital 
the engineers who redesigned our main hospital building as well as our biocontainment unit, they really had great foresight in, in creating lots of negative pressure space in the hospital. So we are blessed with having hundreds of negative pressure isolation rooms, but we also have the ability to very quickly convert entire wards into negative pressure wards. So she was being cared for on one of our isolation wards for possible COVID patients. And then once we confirmed positivity at the very early on, we transferred all the positive patients to our biocontainment unit for further evaluation and management. What can you tell us about her initial treatment? This is a great question. And I think it's important to remind people what the climate was back in March of 2020. So this was right around the time that there were case reports coming out of France that hydroxychloroquine potentially, you know, it, it was shown to be effective at killing SARS-CoV-2 in a test tube. And there were some initial reports out of France suggesting that maybe hydroxychloroquine might improve outcomes. We've since obviously learned that that is not the case. Hydroxychloroquine does not have a role to play in the treatment of patients with COVID or in preventing COVID. But there was a lot of talk about whether or not you should treat someone with hydroxychloroquine if they were sick in the hospital. The first sort of inklings of people wanting to use ivermectin were coming online at that time. There are some case reports coming out of China that you could use dexamethasone as an anti-inflammatory or other corticosteroids. But actually for our first patient, we really felt that there wasn't enough evidence to justify giving her any of those treatments, that the first goal was supportive care, making sure that that we were keeping her in an environment where she could receive safe care, where we could keep our staff and other patients in the hospital safe. So we did not treat her with anything other than supportive care. And thankfully, she got better in about four or five days and was able to be discharged to home. As 2020 progressed, every night on the news, we saw frightening scenes. COVID body counts rising so fast that refrigerated trucks were called in to be temporary morgues. The incredible strain on doctors and nurses and the entire healthcare system. You were on the front lines through all of it. From those very early days, what are some of the things that most stick in your memory? I remember thinking back in February, March, before we really understood how COVID was transmitted, before we really knew how safe it would be for us to care for these patients in the hospital environment. I, I remember thinking very clearly about now that I've seen my first COVID patient, is it safe for me to go home to the family? And it turned out they decided to get out of town because they knew that I was going to be in the hospital constantly. It wasn't so much a fear of COVID, but they, they just knew that I'd be focused in the hospital. But when they did come back into town after a few days, I ended up staying across the street at a hotel in the hospital that the hospital had provided for providers just to make sure that the protocols that we had been practicing and training for for years on the biocontainment unit, just to make sure that we were safe. So I remember there was that added tension. What about in the time that immediately followed? Very quickly, we exceeded the capacity of our biocontainment unit to care for patients. We have a total bed capacity of four on our unit. Our unit was initially created to care for patients infected with viral hemorrhagic fevers or other high-consequence pathogens, but was designed with an airborne component to be able to take care of a new pathogen like SARS-CoV-2. We also have a sister unit, which has the ability to become a, a complete airborne unit very, very quickly. There were more patients than those two units could handle. And our team actually switched into supporting other units as they came online to be COVID units. And many of our team, including myself, started caring for critically ill COVID patients in our COVID ICU. We took care of the first mechanically ventilated COVID patients in the biocontainment unit. But once we had more than two in that unit, we knew that we were going to need to build that capacity. And so we migrated over to our regular medical intensive care unit. And the engineering structures allowed us to convert half of that unit into a COVID ICU. 
So the first 12 beds could become a COVID ICU and then the second 12 beds could still take care of non-COVID patients. But within a matter of a week or two weeks, that entire unit was filled with COVID patients. And I remember very clearly walking on the unit one morning and, you know, in, in a given week or even you know, let's even think about a month in the ICU, we may have four or five patients that are so severely sick and have such bad respiratory disease that they end up paralyzed on a ventilator and prone, lying on their belly. And I remember very clearly walking onto the unit and every single patient was prone and paralyzed, lying on their belly. How bad was the sense of isolation for the clinicians working on the ward? We rely so much on making connections with our patients, both the individual patients themselves, but also with their families as we navigate uncertainty together and as we help families and, and patients think about the treatment options they have available and to help them navigate their disease. And it was incredibly isolating to not recognize our patients by their faces because in some cases we hadn't seen them in days because they were lying on their belly. And as I'm sure many of our viewers remember, most hospitals didn't allow visitation into COVID units to, to keep staff and families safe. And so it was very difficult to make those connections with patients. And I, I remember that very, very clearly. And I remember talking to one of our chaplains who works in the intensive care unit. And you know, she, she noticed that we were all just a little bit, obviously we were stressed and we were tired, but I think she noticed that there was something else going on. We talked about this and she created this wonderful program called This Is My Story or Tim's, where she would call family members of patients who were intubated and weren't able to speak to us. And she would interview them for 20 to 30 minutes about all the things that mattered to that person and things that the family would want us to know about their loved one as an individual. And she put together a team mostly volunteers and medical students who would then edit down that 30-minute clip and make it a 90-second or a two-minute clip that was actually linkable in the electronic health record. And so on rounds, we were able to listen to a family member say, this is my husband. This is what he'd like to be called. This is the type of music that he enjoys. This is what's most important to him. This is what he's looking forward to when he hopefully recovers. And that made a huge difference. And so I, I remember that very clearly, and I remember the moment where uh, Elizabeth Tracy, our chaplain, decided to do that program. I also really remember the outpouring of support for physicians. So you can see from the ICU windows, you can see across the street to the parking garage. And for the first couple of weeks of our COVID response, there were people on the top of the parking garage with signs, you know, saying thank you to healthcare workers. And every restaurant in Baltimore was sending free food to the intensive care unit to make sure that, you know, all the doctors and nurses and staff who were taking care of patients and supporting the infrastructure for the COVID response were, were getting food. And it was it was a really unique time. I, I'd never seen our community come together like that with a shared purpose. And I, I think there have been lasting benefits from the way people came together, particularly in the hospital, in terms of the multidisciplinary teams that were stood up for COVID and you know, working across disciplines that as business has returned more to business as usual in the hospital, as we have fewer and fewer COVID patients, there still are some of those connections and benefits that I think are, are going to remain. Thank you, doctor, for bringing us such a vivid picture of your experiences at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now I'd like to ask you about what's currently happening. I wish I could say at the end of the pandemic, but we're not sure we're there yet. So let me ask instead, what's happening on the front lines now? And that's our second learning objective. Describe the current challenges in managing COVID-infected patients in spring of 2022. 
in terms of who we're seeing coming into the hospital, I, I think there's a mix of individuals who, for whatever reason, have not been vaccinated. And I think it is important to mention that there are still individuals in our country and around, certainly around the world who are eligible for a vaccine who, for many different reasons, have not gotten them here in the United States. A lot of it has to do with, I think, misinformation about the risk benefits of vaccines and a misunderstanding about the safety of the vaccines and their role in preventing hospitalization and death. So we do unfortunately still see a fair number of patients who are unvaccinated coming into the hospital. We also are seeing, unfortunately, a fair number of patients who are immunosuppressed in some way. Their immune system was not able to mount an effective response to the vaccine. And so, you know, for example, I just saw a, a woman this morning who, who has severe COVID because she received a medication that she needed for another condition, which then suppressed her immune system. And so even though she's had four doses of a vaccine, her immune system has not been able to mount an effective response. And so she unfortunately was hospitalized. But also during the Omicron surge, we saw a large number of patients who were hospitalized and then were found to have COVID. So their initial presenting symptoms were unclear if they were related to COVID. I'm not sure I understand, doctor. A great example of this would be someone who was in a motor vehicle accident who wasn't clearly having symptoms from COVID. They come into the hospital for emergency care and then they get tested because we're at that point in time, we were screening everyone for COVID because there were so many cases. And they're found to have COVID. And so sometimes those patients might progress in the hospital to developing signs and symptoms of COVID. And we've since learned that for patients who are at high risk, there are treatments that are effective in the hospital to prevent severe disease progression. Uh, tell us about those effective treatments. We do have an IV antiviral that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. That's remdesivir. And there was a, a large trial that showed that patients who received remdesivir had a quicker time to improvement and we're less likely to progress to severe disease. And we've since shown in large retrospective studies, both using our data sets here at Johns Hopkins, but also as part of a larger uh, data consortium called HCA Charge, and, and other studies that have shown that remdesivir does likely prevent severe disease, and in some cases may prevent death. So we certainly have a number of other options to provide individuals once they are either symptomatic with COVID or if they're high risk once they've been diagnosed with COVID. So all in all, Dr. Garibaldi, what have we learned so far from our response to COVID? You know, over the last few years, I think we have learned a number of important lessons that we have to carry forward as we think about dealing with the continued COVID pandemic, but also as we prepare for possible future pandemics. One of the issues that I think is really important is we need to work on surveillance. We need to do a better job of anticipating what infections might be coming down the pipeline. Many of the infections that are likely to cause or possibly could cause a pandemic are going to likely come from an animal host. We've seen three coronaviruses in the last 20 years that have made the jump from animals to humans, and each one has been more infectious and more significant in terms of its ability to cause severe disease and death. And I think we've learned that we need to be better prepared to anticipate what those infections might be and have diagnostics ready to go, have different countermeasures potentially ready to be trialed very, very rapidly in order to combat the next potential pandemic. I think we need to do much better, a much better job about sharing information with the public. You know, there was a report that came out estimating that almost a quarter of the deaths in the United States, you know, we've had at the time of this recording close to a million deaths from COVID in the United States. And it's been estimated that about a quarter of those 250,000 people were likely preventable deaths because those are individuals who were eligible for a vaccine and chose not to get a vaccine because of some of the misinformation that's been circulating about vaccines. So I think we need to we need to learn how to communicate information and communicate risk 
to individuals much more effectively because we had the information to know that getting vaccinated for those individuals was likely the right thing to do, and yet they still chose not to. And there's a really important message there. I also think we need to do a better job, and we have done a better job because of the pandemic in sharing information across health systems. And so one of the things that we've done here at Johns Hopkins, we, we created something called the JH Crown Registry, which is a patient registry that collects information about all the patients that we see in our health system who are testing positive for COVID and also some patients who tested negative. So we have some control patients to compare to. And we've been able to learn in real time, what are the drugs that are likely to be effective? Can we predict which patients are at high risk of developing severe disease or death? Long COVID. There's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of ongoing research. What are your thoughts? We have a lot of work to do in understanding the long-term consequences of COVID infection, both in terms of what it says about baseline healthcare disparities, you know, the fact that certain socioeconomic and racial groups in our country have borne a much higher burden of COVID disease, but also in terms of thinking about the long-term health implications of people who are infected. This notion of long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID, as the NIH calls it, or PASC, it's probably multiple diseases. And I think it's going to take years and really, really intense collaborations across multiple health systems and multiple groups to try to really understand what are the factors that cause certain past symptoms? What are the potential ways other than not getting COVID in the first place? How can we prevent post-COVID syndrome in patients who do become infected? And as important, how do we treat the millions of patients who are going to have symptoms for months or years after their COVID infection? You know, that's going to be a huge issue for our healthcare system moving forward. And one where I think we can you know, build on some of the lessons in data collaboration and, and team science that we use during COVID to really try to answer some of those questions. I'd like to ask you now, if you would please, doctor, to speak directly to the pulmonologists, nurses, respiratory therapists, and, and the other healthcare providers in our audience and walk us through a case. Dr. Garibaldi? If you're encountering a patient today who's, who's been diagnosed with COVID and has symptoms, First and foremost, I would say, you know, you, you need to know what your day is relative to when this podcast was recorded, right? Because things do change fairly rapidly in COVID time. But as of April of 2022, if you're seeing a patient who's just been diagnosed with COVID, and this happened to me on my way to work this morning, I stopped and said hello to my neighbor who said, stay away, I just got diagnosed with COVID. There are many, many options that we have available. So I would start with understanding who is that person. What are their risks for developing severe disease or death? Do they have underlying health conditions? Are they older? Are they immunosuppressed? Have they been vaccinated? And if they've been vaccinated, have they received a booster? All of those will help you determine what's the likelihood that this person may develop severe disease or death. And in those individuals who are high risk to develop severe disease, hospitalization, or death, there are treatments that are available as outpatients. And the two main ones that I would consider right now are monoclonal antibodies or one of the oral antiviral drugs. Those drugs work best if you get them to patients early on in the course of their disease. So the sooner you can get someone access to those drugs, the better. The government has a great website where you can look up which pharmacies in your area may have access to the oral antivirals. And most state health departments and local hospitals will also have information on their website on where are the infusion centers in your area to get monoclonal antibodies. So that was where I would start is, is this person who just got diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2, are they high enough risk to get one of these outpatient therapies? Good directions for outpatient treatment. What about patients who are hospitalized? 
if you're in the hospital and someone's admitted with COVID-19, I would go through a similar risk assessment and first ask the question, are they in the hospital because of COVID or did they come into the hospital for another reason and also were diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2? You know, are their symptoms right now attributable to the SARS-CoV-2 virus? And depending on the answer to that question, you may decide to do something different. You may decide to go more directly after the COVID infection. And what would that entail? What do you recommend? So if a patient's in the hospital and they require oxygen and it's due to their COVID infection, you know, I would recommend treating them with an antiviral such as IV remdesivir, which is FDA approved for patients who either are hypoxemic or have required oxygen. Well, it's actually approved for, for a wider range of patients, but we're using it in patients who are uh, hypoxemic or require oxygen. But once someone goes on oxygen, I would also consider treating them with a corticosteroid like dexamethasone. And then depending on how they do, that may be all that you need to do, supportive care and those two medications. And if that's not enough, what would you recommend as the next step? If they progress despite remdesivir and dexamethasone, then we consider going to another anti-inflammatory agent. And there are a number of ones that are available. The most commonly used probably is tocilizumab, which is an anti-IL-6 medication, which has been shown to reduce the likelihood that someone will progress to requiring mechanical ventilation or, or die as a composite outcome in a number of different studies. And so that, that's sort of the stepwise progression is starting with an antiviral, adding an anti-inflammatory if someone goes on oxygen, and then stepping up that anti-inflammatory therapy if they progress despite those initial treatments. We've also learned a great deal about the role of supplemental oxygen in patients with COVID. For example, I think early on, we were intubating patients very quickly because we were worried that it was hard to get into our gear and, and take might take too long to get them onto a breathing machine safely. But we now know that we can use therapies like high-flow nasal cannula to temporize someone who's very hypoxemic. And in a few retrospective studies, including one that we did here at Hopkins, patients who went on high-flow nasal cannula, even if they ended up getting intubated for their COVID, if they were very severely ill, had, had a, a slightly better outcome. So there's probably a role to trying to delay intubation if you can support someone with high-flow nasal cannula. And obviously, you have to, to make sure that they're a good candidate for that in terms of their hemodynamics and their mental status and their ability to tolerate the high flow. And then once someone, if, if they do progress to becoming intubated, we know that early proning, if they have a low P to F ratio, if, if they're requiring either high levels of oxygen or have a low PaO2, despite those high levels of oxygen, we know that those patients probably benefit from putting them on their belly for at least 16 hours a day. It improves oxygenation acutely, but it also probably limits barotrauma and ventilator-induced lung injury. So if you do progress to mechanical ventilation and have a low P to F ratio, I would recommend proning those individuals. And then if you need to, using intermittent dosing of paralytic agents to further improve their oxygenation if they're severely hypoxemic. What about full-dose anticoagulation? Your thoughts on that, please. There are some studies suggesting that patients who are not yet in the ICU, if you put them on full-dose anticoagulation, they may have a, a lower risk of developing severe disease or death. But once they get to the ICU, full-dose anticoagulation is probably not effective because the injury has already happened. The other thing I would also urge people to think about, particularly in patients who are immunosuppressed, think about whether or not their current symptoms might be due to lingering SARS-CoV-2 replication. We have seen a number of individuals who weeks out from their initial COVID tests have had persistent symptoms. And when you retest them for COVID, not only are they PCR positive from their nasal swab, but they also have a very low cycle threshold, indicating that the virus is probably still replicating. And so those individuals may benefit from additional antiviral therapies 
to try to shut down viral replication. And so thinking about a second round of remdesivir, thinking about whether or not they might be a, a candidate for high titer convalescent plasma, for example, those are some additional things to think about if you're seeing a, a number of patients in your practice who are immunosuppressed. Before we wrap things up, I, I want to ask you, out of everything we've talked about today and everything you've gone through responding to patients infected with COVID-19, what's your best memory? If we think back to March of 2020, when we took care of our first patients at Johns Hopkins, we were talking about how great would it be if in the next two years we had a vaccine that could limit the impact of COVID by 50%. And less than a year later, we had not one, but we had two vaccines that against the initial wild type variant prevented over 90% of infections and virtually eliminated hospitalization and death for people who had normal immune systems. And then there have since been other vaccines that have come online that, that have also shown fairly good protection against severe disease and death. That's pretty amazing when you think about what we were hoping for back in 2020. From the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 Precision Medicine Center of Excellence and the Johns Hopkins Biocontainment Unit, Dr. Brian Garibaldi, thank you for joining us for this ePulmonology Review Program. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks to all the listeners for all the work that you have done in caring for COVID patients over the past several years. For ePulmonology Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at epulmonology.dkbmed.com. ePulmonology Review is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca and Viatris. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. ePulmonology Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.